This is the word of God and it is eternally true. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So we see the context. The context, again, is the division in the church. They're fighting. They're fighting over circumcision, but they're fighting over being Jews and Greeks. They're fighting over being black and white. Any way you can get your mind around it, it's the typical, you know, newcomers versus old timers, people that sit at the front and like prairie's music versus people that sit in the back and can't stand it. You know, we always have these divisions, right? And so he says to them, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I want us to focus on love this morning. He has commanded the church in Galatia to walk by the Spirit. And so now he sets down a list of the fruit of the Spirit. And so fruit are the evidence by which we know that the Holy Spirit is at work within us and that we're not simply in bondage to the flesh. You remember that Jesus promised us, saying, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So if the Holy Spirit is promised to us by Jesus, then we ought to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now then, here is a list of the fruit. And I ask you, do you walk by the Spirit and do you evidence the fruit of the Spirit? Each day in your life is there evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is coming out of you by virtue of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. In Luke, our Lord gave us the rule. Each tree, he said, in Luke 6.44, each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Each tree is known by its fruit. Okay, so the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, last week we saw that the theme of fruit is throughout Scripture. Satan hates life. God is the giver of life. Fruitfulness is one of the principal blessings God pours out on his people. Jesus said in John 10:10, 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, abundant life is fruitful life. It's fruitful physically with apple trees and sheep and fields of grain and babies. It's fruitful spiritually with those who place their faith in Jesus adopted into God's family and bearing fruit for him. And through evangelism and discipleship, corporately we bear fruit for God. Through love and joy and peace, individually we bear fruit for God. Abundant life is fruitful life. Jesus said in John 15, 1 and 2, and I recommend to parents that their children, all of them, memorize this chapter of Scripture. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Are you a branch that bears fruit for God? Now, we think that we love to bear fruit for God. You know, as we think about ourselves... 
we're conservative Christians in the United States. We're, we're not in other countries. We're not Orthodox. We're not Roman Catholic. We're Protestant. And we're Evangelical Protestant. And to be an Evangelical Protestant means to believe that at the center of God's purpose for us is to bear fruit for God. And so we think that we believe in bearing fruit for God. We believe in the Gospel, and we know that the Gospel, that word, means good news. We believe in witnessing. We believe in evangelism. We believe in sharing the good news. But how carefully have we looked at our fruit? Often we're not nearly as committed to bearing fruit as we think we are, either physically or spiritually. Out of His great love for us, God is in the fruit testing business. Out of His great love for us, He's in the fruit testing business. He is not fooled by fake plastic apples and oranges. I think they have to be, I'm sorry if you have them on your table, but I think they have to be one of the most hideous things that there is in life. Plastic fruit. I I admit I hate them. I remember when I was a child seeing these cornucopias that were on in the middle of the dining room table and coming out of them was this plastic fruit. Now, it may be that when I was a young man, we never ever had fruit in our homes, so generally I won't eat fruit anyhow. But the idea of plastic fruit, that's just bad. You know, you scratch it and it hurts your fingernail. Because God loves us, He's in the fruit testing business. He's not fooled by fake plastic apples and oranges. Instead, He picks it us up and He feels our heft. He turns the piece of fruit around and He looks for blemishes. He looks for bruises. He looks to see if it's ripe, if it has the right color. A couple of years ago, Mary Lee and I and our family went out to Georgia to to have a vacation. And on our way to the beach, we stopped at a, at a uh, peach farm or a peach uh, orchard or a peach conglomerate. It was humongous. And one of the things they did there was they gave you a tour of their peach sorting room. Huge conveyor belts going at high speed, hundreds of people standing there. And what were they doing? They were fruit inspectors. They were looking at every single peach to make sure that peaches did not go out of that place that were defective, that were rotten, that weren't ripe, that, that somehow had not, the tree had not produced good fruit. And so if you think about it, God is the great fruit inspector and God has called us to inspect our fruit. He has called us to inspect one another's fruit. One of the principal jobs that elders have in a church is to inspect the fruit of the church, to inspect the fruit corporately, to inspect the fruit individually. And this is good. This is something that God desires. Recently, the pastor's college finished studying Jonathan Edwards' life. And if any of you want a good biography to read, read Ian Murray on Jonathan Edwards, M-U-R-R-A-Y. And uh, Ian Murray writes about Edwards and the Great Awakening in the 1700s in, 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 on the east, uh, eastern portion of our country. And how at the beginning of the Great Awakening, there was, uh, as Whitfield went around preaching and the Tenet and Edwards and so many others, that um, it appeared that God was bringing great, great fruit into the church, that many, many people were being saved, that there was a great work of the Holy Spirit in the church. 
And so everybody was excited over in England and Scotland. They wanted news of it and they got Edwards to write an account of it and he sent it over and it was published. And everybody was excited. They'd been praying for this. There had been concerts of prayer. But then a few years later, after there had been this great ingathering of fruit, all of a sudden Edwards began to look at the people that had been gathered into the church and what he saw was that there was not fruit in their lives. That yes, the awakening had seemed to produce fruit, but these people were not continuing to walk after God. And so the rest of his life, Edwards gave himself to writing about and thinking about and preaching about how to make sure that we have true fruit and that it's not false fruit, plastic fruit, fake fruit. Now, if you think about Jesus and you think about what he did in his life, isn't that a good summary of what Jesus did? Think of how he began preaching. The minute he began preaching, what happened? What was obvious that there was bad fruit, right? The second he began preaching, he began to get resistance. Why resistance? It was Jews. It was God's people, God's covenant people. All their children were circumcised, right? Why were they resisting him? Well, the reason they were resisting him was they were not true fruit. And as the battle was engaged that Jesus brought on, all right, as the battle was engaged, there came a number of key moments. One of the key moments was where they were furious with him because they wanted to depend on their infant baptism. Well, you say, no. I say, okay, their circumcision. They wanted to depend upon the fact that they were the children of Abraham. And do you remember them saying to Jesus, who was their father? They said, God is our father. And Jesus said, what? No, your father is the devil. This is fruit inspecting. It's very personal. It's, he's speaking to people. We read it in the text and we think, well, it's like a movie. It never happens. It's like the Hobbit. No, it really happened and they killed him. Why? Because Jesus came and he exposed the nature of hypocrisy in the church. And this, again, is one of the key ways for you guys as you leave this community and go out. Wherever you go, we lose about a quarter of our congregation every year. This is a key way for you to select a church. Go into that church and ask yourselves in your brain, is there fruit inspecting here? Not is there a helpful moral lesson every Sunday. But do we just take for granted that what everybody says here is true? Is there fruit inspecting here? Do we, do we recognize the kind of conscientious application of the Word of God on the part of the elders here to the congregation that Jesus and His disciples gave, that Paul is giving here in Galatians? And so this theme of fruit inspecting is all through Scripture. You look at the prophets in the Old Testament. What were the prophets doing? They were inspecting fruit. You know, you read Isaiah out loud. What, what's going on there? It's fruit inspecting. What did Jesus do? He did fruit inspecting. What is a pastor? He's a fruit inspector. What was Edwards? He was a fruit inspector. What was Whitfield? What was Spurgeon? What was Lloyd-Jones? Big evangelistic campaign. Comes to London. All kinds of hoopla. Um, what's the name of the guy uh, out on the West Coast um, who, did the, uh, who did the newspaper, the L.A. Times? Uh, Oh, I can't remember his name. The guy that said Puffum. You know, this big... You don't know this. All right. I mean, it's my generation. Anyhow, there was this... Anyhow, there was this... What's the name? The Hearst. Hearst. Okay, Hearst says newspapers. What does he say? Evangelist comes to L.A. says Puffum. And so the newspapers all puffed him. 
He came to London. Everybody was puffing him. Well, Lloyd-Jones stands up and Lloyd-Jones says, now wait a second. You have men who... Ha- yes. Oh, you don't know what puff him means. Um, now I'm blushing. Okay. Can I have a translator? <laughs> yeah, sing his praises. Um, huh? Inflate him. Yeah, that's what puff means. Yeah, when I was a kid, I used to fish uh, at Cape May, New Jersey, and, and there was a puff fish that I'd catch. The minute you bring him out of the water, he starts puffing. And his belly gets bigger and bigger until it's a belly, belly, big belly. Okay, he was puffed. And so the newspapers were supposed to puff the evangelist. Went to London, puff him. But the problem was that on the platform were spiritual leaders who had no knowledge of Jesus Christ, who were opposed to the virgin birth, who were opposed to the inerrancy of Scripture, who were opposed to justification by faith alone. All right? And so a conflict ensued, and to this day, principal leaders in our world that you read are on opposite sides of that conflict. People still argue about that conflict. Who was right? What? The issue was fruit inspecting. The issue was, do you want to give over to these men the discipling of your converts? Is that a right thing to do? You've heard me say often that the church, the evangelical church today, hates the gift of discernment and does not want it practiced. It's because why? Because the gift of discernment divides. This is fruit inspecting. And so now I want to ask you this morning about the fruit of love. Do you have love? Do you have the fruit of love? You say, I believe in fruit, I believe in evangelism, I believe in sharing the gospel, and I say to you, do you have love? The fruit of the Spirit is love. In other words, it's not sufficient for us to give ourselves to knowing how to share the gospel, knowing how to preach the gospel if we don't have love. Some of you may have had the uncomfortable experience of going out and uh, witnessing And realizing as you're out witnessing that the person you're witnessing with to unbelievers has not an ounce of care or love for the people they're talking to. It's simply a a question of collecting um, scalps so that they can go back and say, this number of people prayed to receive Jesus. Okay? What's wrong? I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. I give the gospel, but I have not love. What does the Bible say? about the fruit of love. Well, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, you see. There it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Alright, so like, here's what it sounds like. Is that a pleasant sound? Is that the kind of sound that you want when you're sick in bed? That's what we sound like if we don't have love. We may speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love. All of you have been impressed in a worship service by listening to somebody who knows the cadences and the vocabulary of the King James Version. 
They speak with the tongue of men of angels. Uh, Malcolm McFarland at ECC, where I used to pastor, speaks with the tongue of men and of angels because he has an, uh, a Scottish brogue and he carries a King James Bible. Sometimes they'd have him read Sunday evening because the combination of a Scottish accent and the King James Version is like as close to heaven as you can get, right? But if we don't have love, what is it? You know, you've been around people who pray, and they have all of the uh, these and the thous and the wherefores, um, and it just sounds perfect. Uh, they're able to speak in that language, but without love, what is it? Um, it may be that you are able to begin each sentence with, Sister, I just want to share something with you that the Lord has laid on my heart. And there's no love. You know, it may be that that's the preface for you talking negatively about your husband. I just want to share something the Lord's laid on my heart. You know, the Lord gave me a husband who did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. And I, I, I see that there may be some of these issues with your husband. And I just want to lay, the Lord, the, I, I just, yeah. And you know that it's like chop, 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 chop. Sounds real good. They can put in wherefores and, and, and whosoevers and, and these and thous and chop, 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 chop. You know, there's no love for her husband. There's no love for you. There's no love for your husband. It's a bond of what? Rebellion. That's all. You know, it may be that uh, you teach men how to love their wives, but you don't love your own. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, this is a really big one for us. It's a big one because we're a reformed church and it's a big one because we're in a university community and we have the idolatry of brainism. We love our brains and we love our thoughts and we love our knowledge and we love our words and we love our theology and our doctrine. The final ism we have not yet been able to bring ourselves to repent of is this brainism, the prejudice of those who are smart and bright against those who are slow and plodding. More likely in a university community, the prejudice of those who have academic degrees against those who have none, of those who read against those who don't read, of those who move and sweat for a living against those who think and talk for a living. The prejudice of women who work against those who stay home and are, quote, just housewives, unquote. Therefore, proving their knowledge and likely their drive are lacking and that that's why they're content to let their husband do the job while they stay home with the children. They lack drive. They lack knowledge. And you see how subtle this idolatry of knowledge is. There are those who know all about children, but have never loved any particular child. Those who have taught many wives how to love their husbands, but have never used any of that knowledge to love their own husband. Those who know their wife's deepest mysteries, but use their knowledge to gain the upper advantage in arguments rather than using it to show their love. And what of spiritual pride? Well, this is the most terrible perversion of knowledge. 
There are those who know the Bible backwards and forwards who are able to recite whole portions of Scripture from memory, even from the King James Version, and yet have no love. Those who are able to tell the difference between Roman Catholic doctrine and Reformed doctrine are able to explain the meaning and purpose of sexuality as God created it. Those who will affirm the headship of the husband. Those who can explain the difference between imputation and infusion. All right. And have absolutely no love. None. Knowledge has replaced love. Knowledge has, has, has expanded, puffed, blown up, until the knowledge becomes a way of asserting our superiority over another believer that Jesus Christ has died for. And this is done by Christians, and it's wicked. And we do it. Maybe you know how to explain the Romans' road of evangelism. You can go right through and give them every step in Romans. Lead them right up to the kingdom of heaven, to the wicked gate. And right there, it may be that your goal is not at all the love. It may be that you have knowledge It may be that you can speak as a prophet, that you have a glib tongue. It may be that you have knowledge. It may be that you have faith. If I have faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. You say to people, I'll pray for you, brother. God answers prayer. Just believe. Scripture says if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's enough for God and He will act. I'll pray for you, brother. Keep me posted and I will pray. And the Bible says what? The Bible says in James 2, beginning with verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, the demons have faith. Think about that. The demons have faith. They have faith and they fear God. Think about that. So it may be that you have faith. How often faith is used as an instrument to destroy other Christians? Name it and claim it. I remember when I was in this church and my brother Nathan was dying. And I had repeated in my life what my father had in his, where we prayed for my brother to be healed. He was going to leave behind a wife, young wife and four little children. And we prayed that he would be healed. He was anointed. We, we, we claimed the promises of Scripture. But it became very clear that God had chosen not to answer those prayers. And so we all began to prepare for his death. And dying is hard work. And it requires sweat, blood, and tears. It's hard. 
And in the middle of that, I prayed one Sunday that God would be merciful to Nathan and to his wife and to his children as he, be, as he was dying. And I made that terrible mistake of saying as he was dying. And I remember a brother in this church who used his faith as an instrument of keeping from any responsibility for anybody in his life. He'd name it, he'd claim it, came up to me and rebuked me for praying in that way. Why? Because I didn't have faith. I was praying that God would be merciful and help my brother and his family die well. And I was rebuked because I was giving up. I didn't have faith. The Bible says that we can have faith so as to move mountains and have no love. Isn't that unbelievable? You know, you'd think faith is the one thing that can't be corrupted. The Bible says in verse 3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Well, you think, what is love? And the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man give up his life for his friend. You think, surely if a man's sacrificial, that constitutes love, because doesn't it say faith without works? So I'll give myself to works. And I remember my father-in-law at the end of his life saying all his life he thought that what God wanted from him was his work. But he realized what God wanted was his love. And so we can give all our possessions to feed the poor. We can adopt children from Africa. We can give our womb to be fruitful. We can die to our hopes and our expectations. We can uh, go visit the widow and the orphan in her distress. Um, We can even be an organ donor. We can even speak up for the Lord at the campus and lose our tenure. We can even be kicked out of our Ph.D. program. We can be failed in our orals. We can lose our position at the firm. We can tell everyone how the reason that we lost this position is that we were faithful and we spoke for the Lord. And we cannot have love. We can make a big principle out of our faithfulness to God. We can confess our faith. We can show how we're different than the world. And we can have no love. We can be outside of Planned Parenthood because of anger and not because of love. We can collect peanut butter because of a desire to be pious and not have love. We can cook and cook and cook and cook without love. Many a man has seen a meal on the table that looks very enticing physically and have absolutely no appetite because it's not coming from love. It's coming from bitterness. Many women can have a man touch her shoulder and she knows that he wants to be intimate and she can withdraw in revulsion. And he can even say, but honey, I love you. And there's no love. Whatever your gift is, it can be a way of hiding what is a loveless heart. Now, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And if it's the fruit of the Spirit, who does it come from? It comes from the Spirit. And does the Bible teach us that things that are gifts from God are things that come mysteriously? 
Well, to some degree, yes. If it comes from God, God has the ultimate authority over it. But does this mean that we cannot work for it and search for it and plead for it and pray for it? No, it doesn't. Never does the Bible teach us that God's sovereignty leads to our inactivity. God commands us to choose this day whom we will serve. And then God says to us, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. We're commanded to choose God. And he says that we have not chosen him, but he has chosen us. Well, if this is true, it's also true that when the Bible says the fruit of the spirit is love, that we are being commanded to live the life of the spirit. We are being commanded to love. And you say, but I don't have love. And I say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And thou shalt, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what you do is you pray. And here's the prayer you pray. You say to God, O Lord, command as thou wilt. And then give to me what you command. And he has commanded us to love one another. I want to end with two biblical accounts. First, the account of a man coming to Jesus, a scribe, a preacher, all right, a teacher of the law. And the scribe comes to Jesus in Mark 12. And one of the scribes came, heard them arguing, and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, he asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And do you remember what it says then? It says when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It seems weird, doesn't it? He just answered him intelligently. Well, you know, to make the step to the point where you will admit that the center and heart of the gospel is the love of God for us and our love for him and for one another, that's a huge step for many, many people who have claimed the name of Christ. And then we ask him, in John, 1 John 4, beginning with verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sons. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another.
Now look around you. You know, as I look at you, I think of uh, I think of the uh, Gale Neath's barn. And you walk in the barn, there's a bunch of cows, and it stinks, and they're all mooing. And you hear the compressor sucking the milk in. Now, that's really as close an analogy as the flock of sheep that Scripture uses for us. Sheep over there, cows over here. You're a bunch of cows. You smell. When I come to milk you, you step on my feet. Your tail flicks me in the head. I get dirty. And I ask you, do you love each other? Do you reach your head through the stanchion over to steal food from your neighbor? You're the one that always has to talk to the elders and the pastor. Take all their time. Do you love the people next to you? You know, do you? Oh, you're the, you're the righteous one. You never, ever take any time from the elders and pastors. And you look down your nose at the people who do. You know, I'm self-service. <laughs> you know, do you love the people in here? Do you love the people in here? Do you even have an intellectual theological understanding of why this is the test that God gives you for the condition of your soul? Or do you believe that church should be a fast food restaurant? The Bible says this. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. Now, one final comment and then David will be relieved. I've just loved you. I've not been hard on you. I've not been rigid. I've not been authoritarian and arrogant. I've given you the word of God faithfully. This is what you should desire. And now your heart under the word of God hungers for love. Now you want to love God and you want to love each other. So then pray and ask him to do it. Forget me. I'm an instrument. That's all I am. And now you deal with God. And if you go from this place and you forget what you've seen in the mirror, you're a fool. You have a choice. You can look at the people next to you and you can love them. Or you can go from this place and just be one more heartless, callous, cruel Christian who says Walt Disney and Washington, D.C. and the Supreme Court are, are, are wicked. It's like, duh. Even the demons believe and tremble. But if you love each other, starting with your wife, if you love each other, then God dwells in you. And He will dwell in us. And He will be pleased by us. So love each other. Let's pray.